You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll examine the story of Job and how emotional honesty before God is such an important part of our walk with Him. Let's get started. And so this is week three of this series. And I want to remind you as we go to the book of Job, um, I'm going to start it around Job chapter three. But I want to take a second and remind you that we started this journey through the book of Job and raising these questions of what is God doing. And we started by two weeks ago studying and looking at Job chapter 1 and really looking at the truth behind why God does what He does with Job. I shared with you uh, that you must understand that the enemy in many ways comes to God in the same way that he approached Eve in the Garden of Eden. When the enemy approaches Eve, he tries to get Eve to believe the worst about God. He suggests that God is withholding something from Eve, which is a part of the impetus um, that leads Eve to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God told Adam and Eve that they were not to eat from. And in essence, when we see Satan again in Job chapter 1, he employs the same trick. He tries to get God to believe the worst of us. But what God, in essence, does is He believes the best in us. He, he says uh, in response to Satan's accusations that if you allow me, God, to harm Job, that Job will not be faithful to you. And in response to that, God says, no, 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 no. I believe the best of Job. I believe the best of my people. And so here he is. He, he, here he is. Try him because God knows that Job will remain faithful um, even in the midst of problems and tragedy and issues. And so you have to understand as we move into the book of Job that what God allowed to happen to Job was, was not a punishment, it wasn't punitive, but instead it was, in many ways, a promotion. And that's where we started with this series. And so when we pick up with um, finding Job where he is in Job chapter 3, you must understand that after losing everything, by the time you get to chapter 3, uh, Job has lost his children um, he's lost his health. The Bible says that there are sores that have come up all over his body. Job has lost his standing in the community. He is no longer the esteemed man that, that the community looked up to him uh, as being. He's lost everything. Job has lost peace in his marriage. You recall uh, that it was his wife's suggestion that, man, you ought to curse God and die. Uh, so there is not peace in his marriage. He's lost his children. He's lost his standing in the community. He's also lost his finances. And so he's lost everything. By the time we get to chapter 3, Job is at the lowest of the low places. And what is interesting about this is that Job doesn't say anything until chapter 3. He, he loses his children. He loses his standing. He loses his finances. His wife uh, has gone crazy. There's no peace in his marriage. His wife is not even there to support him. He's lost it all. He's at his lowest place, and Job doesn't say a word until chapter 3. 
I, um, the last three weeks have been extremely, extremely difficult for me, not only because of COVID, not only because of the protest and everything around, um, yet again, another uh, just unnecessary death uh, of, of a great man, uh, George Floyd. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot that I've been processing through emotionally um, around all of this, but this this last three or four weeks has, has also been really hard for me because I have been finishing the third year of um, my final approach in this second doctorate that I'm working on. And so I'm, I'm uh, finishing, I just actually finished my third year of residency in this doctoral program. It's an additional doctorate that I've been working on for the last three years. And uh, it's been designed in such a way that for the last three years I had to be in residency and be in class and all of that kind of stuff. And because of COVID, um, normally uh, the first two weeks of June, I would be in class in California. Uh, but they decided to do classes online, which made it even more difficult. Uh, and so it's just been, been a busy, busy, stressful, stressful time for me. Uh, on Friday, in fact, I submitted 12 papers, 12 papers that I had to get written and 12 books I had to read. So I don't want to write another paper. Uh, hallelujah. I don't want to read another book for a minute except the Bible. Uh, and so I've just been stressed. But, but this degree, um, this additional doctorate that I'm working on is in cultural apologetics and spiritual formation. And uh, Biola uh, is one of the leading universities in the world in the area, on, uh, in the area of spiritual formation. They are pioneers in the in the area. And one of the things that the university mandates is that if you're going to get a degree or study anything in the realm of spiritual formation, they mandate that every student goes through something called spiritual direction. And when you go through spiritual direction, what that means is that you have to consistently meet with a spiritual director, a spiritual director. And, and if you don't know what a spiritual director is, a spiritual director is, is a person who's trained, um, and they are like a pastor, um, a therapist, and a counselor all in one. And that's, that's really kind of a, a cliff note version of what spiritual direction is all about. And so you meet with this person who, who's like a therapist, they're a counselor, and a pastor all in one. And the design of spiritual direction is that they want you to talk about where you are and what you're going through, and they help you to identify where God is in the midst of it and what God is doing. And, and so uh, coming up, I had never had spiritual direction before, and they said, you know, you, you got to go through spiritual direction as a part of this program. And I'm thinking, uh, I don't really want to go through that. I don't really need to sit down and talk to anybody about what I've been through. I'm good. And, and sure enough, they said, but this is a part of the program. And so, um, you know, I started going through spiritual direction, and, and my spiritual director started asking me questions, and a lot of questions about my life and the stuff that I've been through. And, and initially, my response to the spiritual director was, I, I'm good, I'm good, <laughs> I'm good. Well, tell me about this. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. And they just kept probing and probing and asking questions after questions after questions. And, and I, I figured out that they wouldn't let me just get by with, oh, no, I'm good. The, the cute platitudes, oh, no, no, God has been faithful. 
Oh, no, God has brought me through. They, they, they kept wanting me to open up and talk more and talk more. And so finally, um, after being exhausted because they just kept asking question after question, I finally began to open up and talk about some of the things that I had gone through. And then it was almost like, man, I turned on the faucet and it just started coming out. And I started talking about that. And then they started saying, well, how, do you, how did that make you feel? And I started talking about how I felt. And, and at first... I didn't want to do it, but then the more I began to do it, the more release and peace that I began to feel, and then we began to unpack it, and, and, and I began to see the hand of God in those tragic and difficult encounters that, that prior to spiritual direction, I just stuffed down and I just said, God, help me to get through it, and he helped me to get through it. But, but as I began to talk about it and, and open up and, and to really share, man, I began to encounter God in some very profound ways. And a part of what I want to share with you this morning as we meet Job in Job chapter 3 is don't put a lid on it by way of title of our teaching time today. Don't put a lid on it because what you're going to see in Job chapter 3 is that Job finally begins to open up and man, some stuff comes out. I want you to meet me in Job 3 and let's start in verse number 1 and it says this, it says, at last Job spoke. He's at his lowest point, lost his family, his finances, his health, no peace in his marriage, lost his standing in the community, and it says, at last Job spoke, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, let the day of my birth be erased, and the night I was conceived. Let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it, and let darkness terrify it. Let that night be blotted off the calendar, never again to be counted among the days of the year, never again to appear among the months. Let that night be childless. Let it have no joy. Let those who are experts at cursing, whose cursing could rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Let its morning stars remain dark. Let it hope for light, but in vain. May it never see the morning light. Curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb, for letting me be born to see all of this trouble. For the sake of time, drop down to verse 34, and he goes on, and he says, I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I've always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. When Job finally speaks in Job chapter 3, what I want you to pay attention to is that Job like I described when I sat down with the spiritual director and kind of turned on 
inadvertently the water holes and just began to share and share and share. That's what Job does. He, he begins to speak, and when he speaks, he lets it all come out. Job has an outburst, but what I want you to see is that his outburst is honest. Job is honest about our pain, or about his pain, rather. And the point, I'm, I'm almost getting ahead of myself, what I want you to understand is that that's what God desires. God wants us to be honest about our pain. Job, Job is brutally honest. He's like, man, cursed the day I was born. Job is like, I wish I was never born. And, and, and some people would read this and think, my goodness, how could somebody say that? But here's what I want you to understand. It's honest. He says, this is, this is how I feel. And, and we got to deal with this because often, particularly in the body of Christ, we, we think that God wants us to pretend. And so often, we can be going through and we say, hey, how are you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored in the Lord. No, you're not. We put on airs. Uh, uh, the great Harlem Renaissance poet Claude McKay talked about how we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our teeth and it shades our eyes because often that's what we do. We wear a mask because we think that that's what it means to be, to be spiritual and to be the mature, that God wants us to pretend, and that's not true. So what I want to give you this morning as we get into week three of this teaching series is I want to give you a couple of truths, not necessarily teaching points, but I want to give you a few truths from Job chapter 3 um, that hopefully will help you to understand why you don't need to put a lid on it. And, and here's the first truth. Honesty acknowledges the competence of our healer. See, part of the reason that God doesn't want you to pretend is because when you're honest, in many ways, it acknowledges the competence of our healer. This is a part of the reason why Jesus would often ask people prior to him healing them, he would ask, what do you want me to do for you? In, in different translations, he would even say, do, do you believe that I can do this for you? And, and he would have them verbalize it. I remember the encounter with, with blind Bartimaeus, and, and he, would, he would say, what, what, do you want me to, what do you want me to do? And, and he would ask that question not just because he was trying to gauge whether or not people had the faith to believe that God could do it, but he was also trying to get the sense of did they believe that he, as the Son of God, had the competence to heal them. This is also why it says that he could do no miracles in Nazareth because they had no faith, meaning they had, they had no competence in him as a healer. They saw him. He grew up in Nazareth, and they saw him as, oh, well, that's Joseph's boy. That's the carpenter's son. Surely he can't be the Son of God. And so, and so Jesus would often ask people, do you believe that I can do this? What do you want me to do for you? And he would gauge their honesty because when we're honest about our pain, when we're honest about what we're going through, the honesty acknowledges the competence of our healer. Job's outburst illustrates that there are no emotions, listen to me, that we need to put a lid on. See, a lot of times we approach God like there is a scale 
of emotions. Like, like the good emotions are over here, and that's where, where we need to be, you know, with God. And then there, there are these other emotions over here that we need to hide, that we don't need to let anybody see. Surely not God. And we, we approach God often that way, like there is this scale that when we're on the good side and we're feeling good and we're joyful, then all right, great. Then, then God is pleased. But when we're over here and we're frustrated or we're disappointed or we're mad, then, then, then man, we got to handle that because we, we don't want to disappoint God. But what Job's outburst illustrates is that there are literally no emotions that we need to put a lid on that, that God can handle all of it. As a matter of fact, let me show you something. Meet me in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 1. 1 Kings 19 and verse number 1. Because I want you to see that God can handle all of our emotions. It says in uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 1, when Ahab got home, this is after Elijah has the showdown with the 450 false prophets of Baal. He's on that mountaintop, the top of Mount Carmel, and fire falls from heaven. And it says, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way that he had killed all of the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. And Elijah was afraid and fled for his life, and he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. He's like, you go and you stay there. And, and he left his servant. He left his servant there, and it says, then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. And listen to what he says to the Lord. I want you to see, he's not on this good side of, of the emotional spectrum. He, he's on this negative side. He says, I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under a broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around, and beside his head was some baked bread on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he laid down again. And then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, for the journey ahead of you will be too much for you. Get this. If God we're so bothered by how we categorize our emotions. If God were so bothered by, by, by not just the good emotions, but the negative emotions, then God would have gotten on Elijah. Elijah says, I'm done, God. I am sick of this. I'm, I'm, Elijah probably in, in today's time would have said, God, I'm just going to keep it 100 with you. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. Elijah out. Drop the mic right? But notice that God doesn't get mad with Elijah. God doesn't, you know, um, chastise Elijah. The only thing God does is God sends an angel to help him, and the angel uh, allows Elijah to take two naps and to eat a meal. That's how God responds to the negative emotions. Elijah is like, I am done. I don't want to preach no more. I don't want to pray no more. I don't want to sing no more. He, I left my servant in Bathsheba. I don't even want a servant. I just want to be by myself, God. I'm done. Take me out. God says, man, take a nap. Go get something to eat. Maybe you need some chicken or something. He says, just go eat. 
See, I want you to understand this because what is this teaching us? You see it with Job. You see it with, with Elijah. God is teaching us that he doesn't, listen to me, judge our emotions. But instead, watch this, God accommodates for our frailties. Oh, that's so good. God doesn't, God doesn't judge our emotions. And you need to hear this because I may be just ministering to several hundred of you that are like, oh, my goodness, you mean God can handle how I'm feeling right now? He absolutely can. He doesn't judge our emotions. He accommodates our frailties. This is why this second truth is so important because truth number two is this. It's not the way we grieve that distances us from God. It's what we grieve. Oh, that's so good. I got to say that again. Truth number two is this. It's not the way we grieve that distances us from God. It's what we grieve. Because if you go back and think about those verses that we read in Job chapter 3, Job curses stuff about his life. He, he curses the day that I was born. He was like, you know, uh, curse the day because it should have closed up my mama's womb. She never should have been able to give birth to me. She was like, anybody, he says, anybody that can really curse and curse in a way that would raise Leviathan, you ought to curse that day. The calendar ought to blot that day off, and nobody ought to ever be able to reference that day that I was born. He curses a whole bunch of stuff about his life, but he never curses God. Ah. <sighs> Job, Job curses the day that he was born and so many other things, but he never curses God. He's honest about his emotions. He says, God, I'm frustrated and, and, and I can't eat because all I'm doing is sighing and crying and I wish that this, I was never born. But he never says a negative thing about God. See, I need you to understand that your honest emotions don't bother God. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, this is the issue not only with Job, but this is also, you see this again with, with Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and, and verse 9. Notice this. It, it says it, in 1 Samuel, it says, one, after, um, once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray, and Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle, and Hannah, listen to this, was in deep anguish, notice her emotions, crying bitterly as she wept to the Lord, and she made this vow, O oh Lord of the heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I'll give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that that he will be dedicated to the Lord. His hair will never be cut. And as she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Watch this. Seeing her lips move, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Once you come here drunk, he demanded, throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger. But watch this. Here's the emotions. She says, I'm very discouraged. She said, I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think that I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. God doesn't rebuke Hannah. God doesn't chastise Hannah. Eli, the priest, doesn't chastise Hannah. God's response to Hannah in this negative spectrum of emotions was to bless her womb. 
to allow her to become pregnant. What am I teaching you? I'm teaching you, family, that you will never really find in Scripture a place where God says, you need to put a lid on that. You need to, you need to hush that up, all that, all that negative emotional baggage. In fact, you won't find that in Scripture. In fact, you'll find the opposite. You, you, you will find God encouraging us to cry out to Him. As a matter of fact, in the book of Exodus, it says that when the nation of Israel cried out to God under the harsh conditions of slavery, God heard their cry and remembered His promise. The implication is that had they not cried out to God, maybe they would have been in that state of slavery far longer. It was their cry that God heard, and it was God hearing their cry that made him say, Moses, go in there and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Why? Because you don't find places in Scripture where God says, no, no, that that negative emotion, I can't handle that. Put a lid on that. In fact, you find the opposite. You find God saying, no, cry out to me. Call out to me. I, I, I want you to be honest about how you're feeling. As a matter of fact, I love Psalm 18 and 6. It says, but in my distress... I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to to my God for help. And he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. I love Psalm 77 in verse 1. It says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. God says, no, I don't want you to put a lid on it. I don't want you to try to stuff it down and pretend that everything is great. No, I want you to... Be honest about how you feel. God encourages us, family, to share everything we feel with Him. There are no good emotions and bad emotions. Yes, there are things that that make us joyful. Yes, there are things that make us sorrowful or maybe even discouraged. But God says, here's the thing, bring it all to me. My son and I were playing basketball in the yard, I don't know, couple of weeks ago just shooting around and we were playing around the world where you know you're at all of the different spots on the court you got to make the shots and and normally you know it's it's a pretty good competition he's a great shooter but this day he just couldn't make a shot and man I had gone around the world a couple of times and I was like so far ahead of him and, and he just got so frustrated and so discouraged that he was like, ah, I don't want to play anymore, Dad. And I, and I saw it as a teaching moment, and I said, no, 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 son. There will be times and days that, that your shot won't fall, but you got to keep shooting. And as I, as I was thinking about this word and looking at the life of Job, Holy Spirit said, that wasn't a lesson just for Ethan and his basketball game. That's a lesson for us. There will be some days when we won't feel like shooting. That's that negative spectrum of the emotions. But, but what God is saying is, you got to keep on. What, what he doesn't want us to do is, is what my son wanted to do, which is give up, put the ball away, and, and just, just say, never mind, forget it. God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I, I, want, you, I want you to bring all of those negative emotions to me. Just, just don't give up on me. Don't, don't hang up the towel and say, forget about it. No, God says, no, no, cry out to me. Let me know how you feel. Now, here's the third truth. Truth number three. Your honesty might bother people, but it doesn't bother God. That's so good. I need to say that again. Your honesty doesn't bother God, but it might bother some people. 
For seven days, Job had his friends to sit with him, and they said nothing. Now, I, I got to pause here and tell you, there's, there's something very special. If you haven't read it in, in Job chapter 2, there's something very significant about Job's friends and what they did. It says literally that when they had heard what Job had gone through, that they stopped what they were doing, and they all made an appointment to see him. That's, that's huge. And I pray in your life that you have the kind of friends that will literally drop everything that they're doing and to come see about you when you're going through. That's the sign of real friendship. But, but that's probably about the best that his friends do in this entire book because the, the rest of what they do kind of goes downhill from there. And it says that they made an appointment. They dropped what they were doing. They all came to see about their homeboy. And for seven days, they sat with him and did not say a word. They just sat there. Job is full of sores, and he's scraping, using stuff to scrape the sores off of his body. He's almost unrecognizable, and they don't say anything. For seven days, they just sit there. The problem was, though, the moment that Job was honest about how he was feeling, his honesty began to make them uncomfortable. I want you to see this. In Job chapter 4 and verse 1, pick me up there. I want you to hear what his friend responds and says, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied to Job, Will you be patient and let me say a word? In other words, shut up, Job. You've been talking too much. Will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking out? In the past, you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You've encouraged those with shaking knees. But now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You are terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. Translation, here's what Eliphaz says. He says, you know what, Joe? You brought this on yourself. That's, that's, what, that's what he says. Job is honest about his negative emotions and what he's going through. He doesn't curse God, but he's honest. And, and his friends who sat there silently for seven days, when Job begins to speak and he's honest, it makes them so uncomfortable that, that they try to respond and they say, you know what? Eliphaz says, you know what, Job? Here's the thing. You brought this on yourself. In theological circles, this is called the law of retribution. Um, this, it's this belief that, that if you do something, something's going to come back on you. Uh, in Middle Eastern circles, um, this is often called Himarabi's Code, um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In Indian culture, they call this karma. We call it karma, that, that you must have done something because, because it's coming back on you. And this is the problem with this thought 
Because a lot of people think this way. There's a problem with this. It may be popular, but it's not biblical. We talked about in week one this notion of deservingness. One of the things that we struggle with as a culture, and particularly as people of faith, is we struggle with why in the world would God allow negative things to happen to good people? And so Job's friends have this same struggle. This is an ugly example of deservedness. They're thinking, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. And, you know, over the years, this kind of prevailing thought, you hear, you hear. I remember when 9-11 hit, and I remember that there were spiritual people talking about this is God judging the world. And I was thinking, how irresponsible is that? I was trying to read a book of this. This guy, and it sold many, many copies. I mean, millions of copies. It was like a New York Times bestseller. And I couldn't even finish the book because it was such garbage. And it was just this. Well, this, 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 this is something that we've done. And so, so we've done something, and so God is judging us. That's popular, but that's not biblical. So Eliphaz says, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. Job, we don't understand why you're going through this. Man, you're going through a difficult season. But the only conclusion we can draw is that you had to have done something. You know, even the disciples thought this way. And Jesus had to correct them once again to show them that while this kind of train of thought has kind of drifted through many cultures and been around for a long time, but it's not the heart of God. In John chapter 9, verse 1 It says this, it says, as he went along, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. And watch this. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There it is. They're literally saying, somebody had to do something for this man to be in this condition. And look at Jesus' response. He said, neither. This man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, y'all got it wrong. You're so busy evaluating, what did I do? And God is mad at me, and God is judging us, and maybe I put it out there, so now it's coming back on me. He says, that's not, that's not how it works. That may be popular in your culture, but it's not Bible. We have such a hard time wrestling with this. We, we, we say, well, there must be a reason why difficult things have happened to good people. We even say it of ourselves, God, I've tithed and I've led small groups and I've served and I've done this. So why is this happening to me? Even Mary and Martha suggested this about, about Lazarus. When Jesus finally gets to their home, they say, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. See, the better question Better question is not why. Why did this happen? Who's responsible? You got to understand that the better question sometimes is God, not why, but what are you doing? What are you doing? There's something that you're doing in this, God. What, show me, show me. God, what, what are you doing in this? Where are you? That brings me to the last truth, truth number four. Grief is not the opposite of hope. It's part of the process of hope. (sighs) Thank you, Lord. I remember 
when I really began to understand this as God began to teach it to me. And, and it started happening because my wife and I, we, we, we had some couples that were really, really near and dear to us. And their marriage began to fall apart. And I remember the first couple, they confided in us and what was going on. And I remember we even had them over our home. And, and I remember trying and trying and trying to convince the husband who wanted the divorce, man, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. And I, and I tried to just pull out every verse and every biblical truth I could to encourage him, don't leave your wife. And I remember that he said, no, I'm still going to do it. And, and while he was still going through the process, I remember even long after they had left our home that it was like a weight was on me. And I woke up the next day and the day after, and I just felt depressed. And I said, you know, sweetie, our marriage is great, but I don't know. I feel like we're going through a divorce. I just feel this weight. And what I realized is that I was grieving. And I said, well, God, why? You know, my marriage is great. Why am I grieving like this? That's when God began to help me to understand. See, grief is not the opposite of hope. Grief is actually a part of the process of hope. See, grief is a way in which we say to God, God, I still believe you, though. Grief, in many ways, is worship. Because, because when we're grieving, what we are saying through our grief is that God Somehow, some way, I believe that you can still make this right. And that's what I was feeling with that couple. And then there was another couple. And then I even remember when, when the doctors told me that my mother had stage four pancreatic cancer and only had a couple of weeks to live and the, and the grief that fell over me because, because I was saying, God, but I know you're a healer. I know that you are a way maker. And it was through my grief that I was literally saying, but God, somehow, some way, you can still make this right. A great theologian explained it this way. They said, anguish and grief, listen to this, is not the opposite of hope. They said, anguish and grief is like dragging rocks to the beach. And spelling out with the rocks, S-O-S. Because grief and anguish is the stubborn belief. It's, it's the, the faith that somehow, some way, God will come through and make everything right. Grief is a sign that you're still in it. That I haven't given up, God. I haven't walked away. Grief is a sign that, God, I still believe that you can come through. This is why Job says those famous words, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because with his family being gone, his finances being gone, and him finally now being feeble, he's grieving. But he says, God, in my grief. I still believe that you can come through. Family grief is not the opposite of hope. It's a part of the process of hope. 
Hope I can be honest and tell you I'm still grieving. The death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, so many others. I'm still grieving. I'm still grieving that many of my so-called white pastor friends, they haven't spoken up in support of the black community. I'm still grieving. I'm still grieving. But in my grief, I'm saying to God, somehow, some way, Lord, I believe you can still come. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.